Amen. What a joy it is to worship with you, church. And I look forward now to worshiping through the proclamation and the teaching of God's Word. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open with me to 1 Peter this morning. 1 Peter, in chapter 1, we're going to begin in just a moment in verse 3 and continue studying down through verse 12. I'm going to go ahead and put a disclaimer before I start preaching this morning. On Easter Sunday, I was really excited about Easter, okay? And I received some feedback. I was, I was really fired up, and I enjoyed preaching on Easter Sunday. Um, I know that those of you who are here, you maybe experienced that and saw it. Um, I thought I would tone it back this week, but then I realized how excited I am to be preaching again uh, because I was out last week. So hold on tight. Hopefully, um, I keep my feet on the ground for just a minute, Okay. But uh, we're going to continue our series this morning in 1 Peter. I, I've really been ministered to personally through this wonderful little letter um, in the New Testament. It's maybe unfamiliar to most people here. And what we're doing is we're walking over the next six to seven weeks through this letter. And here's why this is so important. Uh, the title of the series on the screen, you can see it, Living as Exiles. Living as exiles, what does, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an exile? An exile is someone who lives in a land that is maybe temporarily their home, hopefully, right? They're in a strange place. They're in a strange world, maybe. They're separated from everything that they know to be true. They know that they love the things that they hold dear. And, and church, that is so true of us as God's people. As we continue to live in this world that becomes all the more strange, I think it's important that we're grounded in the truth of God's word and what it means to live for him, even if that means living as exiles in a very strange place, okay? So that's the charge over the next seven weeks as we endeavor to learn what it means to live as exiles. You know, it's easy for us to be fooled into thinking that we generally get it right concerning our walk with God. I think oftentimes we think we get it right. Our Christian activity often cons us into believing that doing good things for God, listen carefully, cons us into believing that doing good things for God is somehow as good or maybe even better than knowing God. Maybe you come to church on Sunday or most Sundays, you, you tithe generously to the church, you give to special offerings, maybe you brought food for our food drive and all these things, maybe you serve in the nursery, you pray for others when confronted with their needs, perhaps you even serve as a deacon or a staff member or a pastor. The truth is no one is exempt from this temptation to substitute doing good things for God in place of knowing God, and this is so dangerous. So here's what happens if we regularly fall into this trap. Our activity for God, no matter how devoted now, if we don't know the God that we are serving, it will come to a cease. We will burn out, so to speak. It will not last. At the very least, our activity, it might be twisted into some sort of picture of self-righteousness. And this self-righteousness actually would alienate us from God further and perhaps even uh, serve to thwart the mission of God to reach those who are far from God. So choosing not to know the God that we serve has catastrophic effects on us personally as Christians. But I want to draw you into this church, maybe even more important. If as a church, we do not make Jesus our treasure, our mission will be ineffective. It's about him. It's about knowing him and loving him. It's about understanding passages like we're about to walk through where there are deep truths about who God is clearly conveyed in this passage. 
Effectiveness is not about programs. It's not about gifted leadership. It's not about marketing. It's not about having a comfortable building to worship in. Effectiveness is only measured by how well we know God and draw others to know him as well. We have to know the one we are serving. There's a temptation for us, I think, to take matters of theology or the knowledge of God and separate them into a category that maybe that's just for people in seminary or that's just for pastors or that's just for people teaching at colleges and we separate that. But the church has to know who God is. As we get to 1 Peter this morning, particularly verses 3 through 12, we're going to find that Peter also was really concerned that the people who would read this letter would know who God is. As he encouraged them to live as exiles in this strange place, he encouraged them towards faithfulness. We're going to look over the next several weeks and as we look at practical application of how we are to live as God's people. But before we get to that practical application, it's very important that we're grounded in knowing who God is. So we're going to look at three truths this morning about who God is. Three simple characteristics that can really serve to ground us in the world we live in. And this big idea is what's going to steer our time together. Listen carefully. We live as exiles for the glory of a great God. We do all of this for the glory of a great God. There are two words in that statement I really want to emphasize this morning. And it's the last two in that statement. The words great and God. Friends, we serve a great God. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of all of our Christian activity. He is worthy of us witnessing to the ends of the earth. But we have to know who this great God is. Again, if we don't know who he is, if we don't know him intimately, if we don't dive deeply into passages like we're going to look at this morning, then our service for him will certainly fade. It won't last. With all that in mind, would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Follow along as I read. Peter writes, by the inspiration of the Spirit, to God's people then and to us as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, they searched and carefully investigated they inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced 
to you. Through those who preach the gospel to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the treasure of your word. I pray that the proclamation of your word is clear this morning. I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, will anoint the proclamation of your word. I pray that you will draw people to yourself, that those who are already your children, that you'll draw them even closer in intimate fellowship with you. But perhaps, Lord, those who don't know you at all, who have never known you as their Savior, use this word today to draw them to yourself into right relationship with you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Peter begins in verse 3 with some words that really anchor this controlling theme of what it means to serve a great God. Notice how he begins in verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is clearly a, a declaration, a word of praise to Jesus. And from here we move into seeing the first attribute of our great God. And it is this, listen carefully, our great God gives us hope in eternity. Our great God gives us hope in eternity. Now, before we look closely at verses 3 through 5, I want to acknowledge the obvious for just a second. And I think every one of us have to admit this. Whether you are following Jesus already or not following him at all, I want you to listen carefully to this admission for just a moment. We tend to hope in all the wrong things. We hope in all the wrong things. Every person, whether it was this past week or this past month or this past year or this coming week, you're going to hope in the wrong things. You're going to place your trust in the wrong people or in the wrong things in your life. We place our hope in human relationships and finances, our careers, and even our activity in the church. But remember the whole point behind this passage. Knowing God intimately must be our treasure. Aside from all of these other good things, perhaps, in our lives, this is not what we trust in and what we hope in. Knowing him intimately, that is what we trust in. And so notice what happens as we get to verse 3. Notice what he says. He says, because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We find here that our hope is proven. Our hope is proven. It is not baseless. It is not without foundation. Jesus has came through through the glorious truth of the resurrection. We celebrated this just a couple of weeks ago. Our hope is proven by the evidence of our faith in the resurrection. Paul says this very well in a few of his writings. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. He says, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Again, pointing to the truthfulness of the resurrection as the foundation for who we are as his people. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Again, because Jesus has been raised, we walk in new life. The proof of the resurrection gives us this foundation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. And then this very familiar passage 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, 
your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You see, the resurrection of Christ is foundational to who we are as God's people. Again, as we draw into knowing God, we have to know that he has proven his love for us through the resurrection. Peter is telling the church that has been scattered because of persecution that their hope is not baseless. If God had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, then he also has the same power to give them new life despite the seemingly hopeless situation in which they live. But then we continue reading the verses 4 and 5 and we find this. Our hope is not just proven. Our hope is also secure. Our hope is secure. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. There's this talk of this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice the word inheritance there in this verse of scripture. Now for, for us to understand the real weight of what Peter was saying, we have to understand who first read these words. Many of the people who read these words for the first time might have been converted from a Jewish faith, an understanding that God had given God's people um, an inheritance in the promised land. Maybe you've been reading this with us throughout this year. You read the first five books of the Bible along with us. And what you saw is, is God setting apart a people for himself for the sake of giving them a land for themselves and for his glory. They trusted in a resurrection, of what you, a, 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 new, a promised land rather. They trusted in a promised land. And when they didn't trust always, what happened? They fell away. They began to stray from who God had called them to be. Why? Because they failed to trust always in that promised land that would indeed come. But the promised land then was temporary. The flowers faded. The crops died. And so Peter emphasizes three traits about this new inheritance here in this passage. He says that it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. In other words, the inheritance he was pointing to will never spoil. It will never lose its luster or its beauty. It will remain just as precious into eternity as it is on the first day of eternity. Imagine how you might live if you knew an inheritance was coming your way. Who here is concerned about personal debt in their finances? You don't got to raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. How about that, okay? I have not followed the Dave Ramsey plan very well in my life, okay? I've got student loans. I've got a truck I'm paying for. I wish I could have paid cash for all it, but I didn't, okay? So I'm worried constantly about my personal finances and debt in my life. And I, I'm coming to the end of my school career, and the government is going to come calling for the student loans they've given me on the front end, right? Any of you done that? You know what I'm talking about, okay? I worry about it. I'm concerned about it. If I knew an inheritance was coming my way, I wouldn't worry about it anymore, right? It'd be great. If I knew it was coming and I knew that there was something promised to me, it wouldn't be a concern any longer. Listen, guys, when we live in light of the inheritance that God has for us in eternity, it drastically changes the way that we live our lives on this earth. No longer do the seemingly big things cause us stress or strife any longer. No, because we know there is a home for us in heaven. We understand that there is a promised land for us, an inheritance that will never fade, that will never tarnish, that will always be there. Again, we tend to hope in all the wrong things, things that are temporary, things that eventually disappoint us. But when we learn that our great God gives us an eternal hope, it radically changes the way that we live. But our God is not great just because he gives us a promised land. 
an inheritance that we can look forward to. No, he meets us in the present as well. So notice what we also learn about our great God as we get to verse 6. Our great God gives us joy in suffering. He gives us joy in suffering. Now, before we dive into verses 6 through 9 in detail, if you've tuned me out up to this point, listen closely. This is very important. Before we look at that, I think it's important for us to draw an important contrast between who Peter was writing to here and who we are now. Peter was writing to a group of people who were experiencing the harshest of persecution. Many believe that he would have written this letter in the early 60s A.D., to those who were living under the persecution of the evil Roman emperor named Nero. There are young ears in this room this morning. I won't describe to you what Nero did to Christians, but it was not good. It was incredibly harsh and severe persecution, the likes of which this world has very rarely ever seen. This is an important contrast, friends. Our suffering is light when compared to the suffering of those discussed here. It's also important for us to understand that Peter is not talking about suffering related to sickness or disease or due to our own wrongdoing. The suffering discussed here relates very specifically to suffering at the hands of evil people who want nothing more than to destroy the cause of Christ and his people. So note this, and this is where I really try to lean into a passage like this. As I studied this week, I was reminded that there are Christians all over the face of the world who are facing severe and very real persecution. They come to faith and they follow Jesus in spite of the threat of death for them and their families. Throughout parts of Africa and Asia, Christians are experiencing very real suffering at the hands of very evil people. How dare we ever compare our light affliction to their suffering? Friends, Gas prices going above $3 a gallon is not the same as being martyred for your faith. Being asked to wear a mask or social distance in a worship service is not the same as experiencing persecution for your faith. It's not the same. I have heard countless times over the past year how we are under severe persecution. When we read a passage like this, let us be drawn into the lives of those it was written to. Let us understand there are very real persecutions happen all across the world today. People facing certain death because of their faith. If these people could read these words then and be encouraged to live with joy in face of suffering, we certainly can as well. Why? Because we see in verse 6 that our suffering is temporary. It's temporary. It doesn't last. Notice what Peter writes here. He says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. It's important to note at the beginning of verse 6 that there is a shift to the present tense. He says, you presently rejoice in this time. You're no longer just looking towards a future hope and a future joy. No, you can have joy now in the middle of persecution. Why? Because suffering is temporary. Time on this earth is short in light of eternity with Jesus. Even a lifetime spent suffering because of identifying as a Christian is short in light of being with Jesus throughout the ages. God is not promising here that suffering will be brief. In fact, it may last a lifetime. But even a hundred years on this earth 
spent suffering will be swallowed up by eternity to come. Let's look further at the beginning of verse 7. He says, So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire. We find here that our suffering is edifying. It's edifying. It transforms us. It changes us. It makes us into who God wants us to be. Peter illustrates this truth by describing the refining process of gold. It's it's melted down to remove, remove all of its impurities. And likewise, our faith is put through the refining fire of suffering, friends. But I want you to see how our suffering should cause us to look forward as we get to the end of verse 7. There's a day coming, we see here, it may result in praise, glory, and honor when at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This praise, honor, and glory that come at the revelation of Christ, it points to a time when we stand before Jesus in other words, when we stand there, we, having endured suffering, having endured persecution and hardship, we will hear those precious words from Matthew 25, 23, where Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, come and share in your master's happiness. Paul explains even more clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, he says, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. In other words, don't, don't judge everything that's happening now before you stand before Jesus. Wait until the Lord comes, he says. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and he will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive praise from God. God uses suffering to prepare us for eternity. So as we get to verse 8, we see that God does his best work through the suffering in our lives to draw us near to Christ. In verses 8 and 9, we see this very clear. Our suffering draws us near to Jesus. Peter commends the believers in verses 8 and 9 for loving Jesus and believing in him, not based on their sight. Look at it with me. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Understand Peter's perspective. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Peter was in that upper room in John chapter 20. He was there when Jesus stood there in the flesh and his resurrected body. And he showed all those present, look, it's me, I'm Jesus, I'm resurrected. Peter had that perspective. And yet he's writing here to these people who have never seen. And he says, even though you've never seen, you believe. Be reminded of what Jesus said to Thomas, remember? He said, blessed are you because you've seen and you've believed. But blessed even more are those who never see and yet they believe. Friends, if these folks here walking through immense suffering and persecution, if they could love Jesus in the middle of that, certainly we can as well. There is no one better to cling to in the face of suffering than Jesus. Peter would come to know this truth very well and very intimately in his own life. If you look outside of Scripture and the records of history, we're told that Peter also would die because of his faith. Believing in the truth of the resurrection and holding tightly to that, he would be crucified on a Roman cross because he was a Christian. And as he faced this gruesome death, again, this is not found in Scripture, it's found in history books elsewhere, but listen, as he faced that gruesome death, we are told, he said, don't crucify me right side up. That was only worthy for my Lord. Crucify me upside down. Why was he willing to do such a thing? Because he was drawn near to Christ in the face of suffering. There is no one else or nothing else we should cling to 
in suffering besides Jesus. Our affliction now is certainly light compared to the suffering of those that Peter wrote to here and to Peter himself. So surely in the face of loss of friends due to our faith, maybe even the loss of a job, we can have joy in spite of all of that in the face of suffering. Again, this morning, we're pushing towards knowing God well. Our great God, he has given us hope in eternity that is secure. We've seen now that he gives us also, he gives us joy in the midst of suffering. But as we get to this final paragraph of scripture, verses 10 through 12, we see this last truth. Our great God gives us a privileged perspective. He gives us a privileged perspective. In verses 10 and 11, he, Peter refers to these prophets who, who were looking forward to this time when all of their prophecies would be fulfilled. And we see this, that God is the author of the gospel. Although the prophets may have been the one, ones penning these words or speaking these words, it was God putting those words in their mouth. If you look back to Isaiah chapter 53, Listen to these words, beginning in verse 4, down through verse 10. Isaiah writes these words, and perhaps Peter was reminded of these very words as he wrote his letter. Isaiah says this, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds we all went astray like sheep we all have turned to our own way and the lord has punished him for all the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers he did not open his mouth he was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate for he was cut off from the land of the living he was struck because of my people's rebellion he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Verse 10, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. When Isaiah wrote these words, no doubt he didn't necessarily know that Jesus would be the fulfillment of everything he had said. We're told here in 1 Peter that they long to see this day. They long to look forward to the glory of the crucifixion. They long to look forward to the truthfulness of the resurrection. And yet they never saw those days. But listen, friend, God is the author of this gospel. Throughout the eons of time, he has been working towards that moment in history. The cross stands at the fulcrum of history. We look back as they looked forward. We have a privileged perspective to look back on the testimony of the cross, the truthfulness of the resurrection. Why? Because God worked through his sovereignty. All of those things for his glory and our good. But this last truth is very important. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and all of this has just been heavy church language. I know this is a heavy passage. There's no way getting around that. But I want to boil this down very simply to you, particularly if you are not a follower of Jesus. Listen carefully. We are the recipients of the gospel. 
All of this happened for your sake and your salvation. Listen to verse 12. It was revealed to them, them being the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. We often should be reminded that life is not about us. I can't tell you how many times my wife has told me, hey, Jared, it's not about you. And here I am in a family of seven. It better not be about me anymore, okay? And it's a good thing to be reminded that life is not about you. Living in the family of faith is not about you. We talked about being a good church member here a while back and what it means to, to lay aside our preferences for the sake of his glory and the flourishing of his church, right? It's not about us. But based on the authority of this one verse, I want to tell you in this instant, it is about you. If you're not a Christian, if you've never chosen to follow Jesus, listen carefully. This morning, it's about you. The reason we stand here and preach this word, the reason we prepare faithfully all week is so it can be about you in this moment. To hear the blessed gospel that was written to you and for you. Three times Peter says it here. The second person pronoun, you. His suffering was for you. His death was for you. This gospel is for you. His resurrection is for you. This word is for you. We live in light of looking back on the cross in an empty tomb. He did that for us. And so, non-believer, I want to speak very pointedly to you. Today would be a great day to make a decision to follow Jesus. I tell you often at the end of a sermon, hey, give me a call. Let me know, you know, something struck a chord with you. You have some questions maybe. God has spoken to you through his word and you have things you want to clear up. I tell you often, hey, give me a call. Let me know what's going on in your life. And I told him I would do this before the service, but I want to, I want to lay a story out for you for just a minute. In, in just a little while, we're going to baptize Lance. Lance and I have gotten to know each other pretty well over the past couple of months. And God used an incredible circumstance of suffering in Lance's life to draw him to himself. And every week I would say, hey, if anything that, that I've said resonates with you or strikes a chord with you or speaks to your heart, give me a call. And I said that over and over again. Guess what? Very few people call. That's okay. But Lance called on a Friday night. I was outside a restaurant waiting on a table with my family, and the phone rang. And I saw it was Lance. I thought, hey, I, I've reached out to him a couple times. I, I hope he's okay. And I picked up the phone, and on the other end of the phone, I heard this shaky, tear-filled, tear-soaked voice saying, Jared, something's not right. I know that my brother who just passed away, he knew who Jesus was. But I don't, and I want to know. That night on the phone, I stood there on the sidewalk, and I, I walked Lance through the gospel. And he said, hey, I know all this. I've been told all my life, and I just, need to, I just need to give my life to Jesus. And so right there on the phone, he gave his life to Jesus. This gospel is for you. Let us know. 
Listen, there's a blue card in the back of that pew back. Maybe you're not bold enough to give me a call, but I'll give you one. Just check that box. Say, hey, I want to know what it means to follow Jesus. Put your phone number down there. I want to reach out to you. I want to show you in God's word what it means to have this relationship. Listen, everything we're going to look at for the next seven weeks is meaningless apart from a walk with Jesus. You have to know him for it to mean anything. Your life is only given significance and meaning in light of the cross and the resurrected Christ. So please, draw near to him as he calls you into a saving relationship with himself.